and in our own Christian experiences without realising that it's often really helpful to look back at what's gone on before. So the Old Testament is really a prequel to the New and to events today. I love the Old Testament. It matters. It foreshadows events in the New. It foreshadows God's interaction with his chosen people, Israel, which find fulfilment in the time of Jesus. And there are loads and loads and loads of patterns in the Old Testament, and these patterns connect with Jesus and continue to do so in our time. So it's good to understand the Old Testament and the things that it's saying there. I was saying to um, uh, some of us preachers at Martin's the other evening that when I was a child, Sunday, someone came, we had a Sunday school anniversary, and a speaker came and they had on the table a whole display of boxes representing the 66 books of the Bible. And they had different coloured threads, ribbons running through, and particularly the blood, the red ribbon was for the blood of Jesus, which goes through every book of the Bible, of the Old Testament into the New, in some way or other. So this passage in Hebrews has three sections. First of all, we're contrasting Jesus with Moses as being far superior. Then we're going to look at the Moses generation who failed to enter God's rest. And then there's lots of warnings for today's generation not to fall into the same trap. Now, I spent some time Uh, absolutely talk about sword drill, looking in my Bible, looking at all the incidences of Moses and Jesus. And I have produced this table. (laughs) There is a copy for you to take at the back. Do take it. We actually looked at it and did a study on it in our house group on Wednesday. It was great. But it is mind-blowing. So as a taster, both Moses and Jesus were saved as babies. Both were sent to set their people free. And in fact, we've just had the reading that says Jesus was in the uh, wilderness for 40 days, which echoes the 40 years in the wilderness for the Israelites. God told Moses to put a a bronze serpent on a pole for people who had sickened with a plague because they'd sinned to look at and be healed. And Jesus, of course, was sent by God to die on a tree, on a pole, so that everyone who looked on him would be saved. Both were servants of God, and Jesus, washing his disciples' feet, said he came to serve others and told us to do the same. Both were faithful in God's house, and both interceded and prayed for their people. Moses met with God face to face, and his face shone so much he had to put a veil over it. And Jesus came from the very presence of God and returned there, And we know from that telling of the story of the Mount of Transfiguration how much his face shone then. And of course, Moses was at that event too. Moses led his people to the promised land of rest, and Jesus promises to give us rest, both from our worries now, and gives us the promised rest of eternity. And in fact, in this table, I've got Moses here, Jesus here, and us here. Because not only do the things that apply to Moses apply to Jesus, but there are, the only one that it doesn't recur is when Jesus said, I am. We can't say I am. But all the other incidences can apply to us as well. It's absolutely fascinating. Continuing, Moses was sent by God to rescue his people. And he was a type of pre-apostle. 
because here in Hebrews, it's the only time that Jesus is mentioned as an apostle, which basically means one who is sent. Now, Jesus often spoke of himself and said, I have been sent by God. He was sent by God on a rescue mission. So he is the supreme apostle, the one from whom other all apostleships flow. And then just as Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt from their bondage, so Christ leads us out of bondage of sin and into freedom. So he is the apostle and the high priest who sits at God's right hand interceding for his people. Now Moses did a really good job in God's house. Don't forget, when he went into Pharaoh, he was 80 years old. But it was all servant work getting things ready for what was to come. And Christ is so much more worthy. And thank you for those lovely songs you've chosen, Rose, because they are all about Jesus receiving the highest honour and the praise and the glory. The followers of Moses, unfortunately, failed to enter God's promised rest. The response was terrible. They disobeyed. And they unbelieved. So the writer of the Hebrews is exhorting the followers of the superior Son of God to be careful not to repeat this pattern, because this is another pattern that we can learn from. So what is God's rest? Well, I think the person who's preaching next week, I'm not quite sure who it is, has got the next chapter, which is much more detailed about God's rest. But as a little insight, in the Bible, God's rest doesn't mean sitting back doing nothing. The concept of God's rest is first introduced, of course, after he had created creation, this world. After six days, we're told that God rested from all his work. He didn't rest, of course, because he was weary and he'd had enough, but because there was nothing else to do. Everything that was formless and empty had been resolved, had been created. His work was complete, and he rested almost in a way to commemorate the significance of the six days that had gone before. And we're told in Genesis that God blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath, and made it holy. Of course, later, in the instructions to Moses on the mountain with the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that he had from God, it was echoed there because God instructed the people to have one day of rest in which they should not do any work. And in fact, Rose picked up this morning that when the manna came... They would only pick it up one once each day, and if they picked up too much, it stank and went bad. But on the day before the Sabbath, they could pick up two days' worth, and it would last, and it would so they didn't have to go out, so that they could concentrate on Jesus, so they could fix their eyes on God. And of course, the Sabbath, for us, it looks also forward to the promised land of Canaan. It's the rest he has promised to all those who believe in Christ, Rest from our burdens as we lay them down and find peace in Jesus. It's the opposite of bondage and slavery. And spiritual rest is something we can experience now in the present, but it's also looking forward to the future. The rest when we have all finished God's work that he's assigned to us in this life. The rest that dear Ken is now enjoying, I'm sure. So the Israelites left Egypt in an amazing way, with tremendous excitement and religious fervor. They were led out of captivity by Moses, and they could have been in the promised land within a few weeks. But they sinned dreadfully. 
They saw God provide miracle after miracle in the desert, but they hardened their hearts. And a hardened heart is as useless as a hardened lump of clay or a hard loaf of bread. People with hardened hearts are stubbornly set in their ways. But praise God, in Ezekiel 36, God tells us that he promises to give us new hearts, new desires, new spirits. So the people provoked God by their grumblings and their disobedience. And as a result, that older generation endured 40 years of desert wanderings. Thousands and thousands of people failed to enter into the promised land. And the only two who did enter of that older generation were Joshua and Caleb. And God says of Caleb in Deuteronomy 1, I will give him and his descendants the land because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. What a lovely epitaph for Caleb. Would that that be our response too? So the failure of the thousands of that generation to enter into God's rest serves as a warning from history for us, God's people today. Now verse 7 in um, Hebrews 3 is actually quoted from Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. And the writer gives added authority to his words by attributing the psalm directly to the Holy Spirit. So we actually have three time periods in that next section. You have the psalmist who's using the Exodus as an example to warn the people of his time against unbelief. Then you've got the writer of the Hebrews who's using the psalm and the Exodus to warn Christians in the early church. And of course, the writer of Hebrews is now warning us in our generation using the same example of the Exodus. And he draws on key words of Psalm 95. He warns his readers and us down the generations not to follow the pattern of the Israelites. It's such a shame, isn't it? Because their journey, which started out so wonderfully exciting and promised so much, it actually decided how real they were, how vital their relationship was with God. And they saw, God has said, what happened to their hearts. They became hardened. They went astray. They put God to the test. They were unbelieving and sinful. So what about these warnings for us in today's generation in God's house? God's house is actually mentioned seven times in this passage. God initially uh, instructed Moses to build a sanctuary, a tent in the wilderness where he could dwell and where he could meet with his people. It was made of wood and gold and beautiful linen. Years and centuries later, Solomon built the first temple, which was beautiful beyond comparison. And later it was rebuilt during the time of Jesus. But then in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we are now God's temple Flesh and blood, soul and spirit. Verse 6 of Hebrews says, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We share so many privileges in being part of God's house, and to keep enjoying those privileges and blessings, the writer spurs us on to hold on to our courage and our hope in God. Did you notice the if in verse 6, which is also repeated in verse 14? If we hold our original confidence in Christ firm to the end. 
It's intended to show that true Christianity is proved by endurance, by continued confidence in and loyalty to Christ. We truly belong when we continue believing right up to the end. Perseverance is the proof of faith. We'll look about, there are several warnings and several encouragements to round off this passage. There are the warnings not to turn a deaf ear, not to harden our hearts and not to sin by disobedience, not to rebel against God. In fact, verse 17 says, God was angry with that generation. I'm not surprised. He did so much for them. But actually, the King James Version says, God was grieved. And how sad if we grieve God's heart by being hard in our own hearts. But above all, the Hebrew writer is saying, he's not warning about sins like a lack of devotion or carelessness or worldliness. He's homing in on the sin of unbelief. Because unbelief was the root cause, is the root cause of all the other things that lead to sin. And it led to the Moses generation losing all interest in the promised land of God and his promised rest. Now, of course, we realize, don't we, that the gospel wasn't preached to those early Israelites or understood in the same way as it was in the New Testament to the Jews and Gentiles there, or as we understand it, because, of course, Jesus hadn't yet come to the earth. He hadn't lived and died and rose again. But in that exodus out of Egypt, God showed clearly he had come to redeem them, to save them, through the blood of the Passover lamb, which, of course, was a picture of Jesus. And John the Baptist was later to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God set the people free from bondage to Pharaoh and gave them the opportunity to enter his promised rest. Sadly, verse 2 in the next chapter explains that the message they heard, the redeeming, saving message of you can come out of Egypt and you can go to a much better place, it didn't benefit them because they didn't combine it with faith. How sad. Now, it's easy, isn't it, to think that real Christians are the ones who don't struggle with doubts and discouragements. We all wobble occasionally, don't we? And we find it sometimes a real struggle to keep being faithful to Jesus. Or we may even be guilty sometimes of unbelief. But surely we do believe in the gospel. We believe the blood of Christ redeems us from the power of sin and death. And we believe God can set us free from bondage. So then surely we also believe God's promised rest. That's good news. Perhaps inside we may be not quite sure, maybe we have some doubts, and maybe our heart's cry echoes that of the father of the sick boy in Mark 9 who said, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. That is so real, so down to earth, so true. So by combining our belief or our wobbles about belief with faith, we can walk in his rest in the here and now, long before eternity becomes a reality for each one of us. And what of the encouragements? On Facebook a few days ago, there was a picture of a group of people waiting in line by the, um, uh, band, uh, and the royal wedding procession. And they were standing by, what's the, the 
the things that bah, I can't, barrier, thank you, that's the word, barrier. But, and, and everyone was standing up with their cameras and their phones trying to take pictures. Yes, yes, there was one little old lady, she was standing like that, smiling with her arms folded on the barrier. She was living in the moment. She was just experiencing it without waving cameras and things around. She, it was just savouring the experience. And perhaps this afternoon, there is the encouragement to live in the moment, to savour the experience today of knowing Jesus had, is our rest. And to remind ourselves that the day of opportunity has not yet passed Some of us will be going on June the 9th, taking others, because today could be the day of salvation for someone that we know. And the Holy Spirit is still speaking today. So will today be the day we really live in the moment, that we really listen and respond to God's voice? There are also loads of encouragements to think carefully about Jesus, to fix our thoughts on him, to focus on him each day. So how can we do that practically? Well, you can put reminders on your phone. You can have a favourite verse written in front of the sink so every time you wash up you can see it. You can perhaps make a fridge magnet. I think we did that in, um, didn't we do that years ago for Glow Day? We had fridge magnets that we, oh good. Oh, well what better reason to come to Glow than to have a fridge magnet? Keeping a journal, keeping our thoughts fixed on Jesus will have a real effect upon our decisions and our actions. But we're also encouraged to be careful, to watch our step, to remain constant in our faith with that same confidence in Christ's salvation that we had when we first became a Christian. To make sure our hearts remain soft towards God. So one way to prevent an unbelieving heart is to stay in fellowship with other believers, to talk lots about our mutual faith and encourage each other, to keep reminding each other of the importance of not turning away from the living God, the encouragement to keep listening to God today and living in the moment, savouring what God says, savouring the beauty of his world and learning from the mistakes of the previous generation. Will we make it our aim to encourage each other daily to keep following the Lord? Like Caleb, will we follow the Lord wholeheartedly? Of course, it may be that God wants to speak to us today about some other issue. Perhaps he's calling us to be an apostle, a sent out one. It's not just the big, big wigs who are apostles. Anyone who is in that line, which could be any of us, we are sent out to do his work. And we saw how Moses responded He followed God and he responded to the call. But the Moses generation, what a shame. So we've looked at the main event and we've looked at the prequel. So what about the sequel? A sequel is something that continues the story or expands upon some earlier work. Today, will we say yes to being part of God's continuing story, however that unfolds? And will we allow ourselves to be part of the expansion of his previous work in history because it's ongoing and it's ongoing through you and me? So do you want to be part of God's sequel? Only you know the answer to that. Amen.